Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called In the Name of What? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 18th, 2015. This is a guest essay by Beth Kawasaki. Beth earned her Master's of Arts in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. She works on behalf of at-risk women and children in developing communities and countries. She lives with her family in Northern California. This essay is based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, October the 18th, 2015. On the last day of my term as the president of my kids' PTA, a committee chair said that she had enjoyed working with me because I wasn't all type A, and that I was instead a type B kind of leader. I must have blanched, because she then made a heroic effort to explain why this was a compliment. She did a great job, but my initial gut reaction to, be, to being called type B was negative. Even worse, it revealed that I had internalized a definition of leadership that I don't practice nor aspire to, but which is nonetheless subconsciously present and powerful. Last month, we witnessed lots of leaders in the media. Pope Francis visiting Cuba and the U.S., John Boehner resigning as the Speaker of the House, and GOP candidates infotaining us with their presidential debates. Recognizing that there is value in their diversities of experiences, styles, worldviews, and roles, I found myself yearning for a transcendent common core that unites and underpins human efforts as we consider the urgent issues of our day. C.S. Lewis argued for this unifying idea in what he called Tao in his book, The Abolition of Man. Lewis's Tao is a belief that humans have an objective, shared sense of what attitudes and actions ring more true versus more false, and that this shared sense has spanned human history, cultures, and religions. But even with Tao-fueled hope, this week's lectionary readings are unsettling reminders of the costly and ephemeral nature of authentic leadership. In Job, for example, God casts creation as big, beautiful, and fierce, and points out that humans are not the creators or center of it. In Isaiah, Psalm 104, and the Gospel of Mark, the authors caution that being just does not necessarily mean that one will be safe, unopposed, and understood. In Hebrews, even good leaders are tempted and fail, and must access the forgiveness they promote and provide for others. These scriptures affirm that God is in control, with us and for us, but also that God is not a spin doctor or a fixer. My favorite book on leadership is Henry Nouwen's little gem, In the Name of Jesus. 
And like the lectionary, it speaks to the costly and paradoxical nature of Christian leadership. Nowen, a Dutch-born Catholic priest, professor, and writer, had reached the highest level of success and influence as a religious academic, teaching at the University of Notre Dame, and then Yale and Harvard Divinity Schools. He later left academia to live at L'Arche Daybreak Community with profoundly developmentally disabled adults. His experience as a pastor there broke open his definitions of success and leadership and led to this small little book. <clears throat> Two gospel stories guide Nowen's three-part reflection. The story of Jesus' temptation in the desert and the story of Peter's call to be a shepherd in John chapter 21. Nowen writes, Jesus' first temptation was to be relevant, to turn stones into bread. He then challenges our drive for control, efficiency, and relevance. While efficiency and control are great aspirations of our society, the loneliness, broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness and depression, and a deep sense of uselessness fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. Instead, Nowen proposes that future leaders will be those who dare to claim their irrelevance and enter into solidarity with the suffering majority, bringing the light of Jesus to them as one of them. Is Nowen kidding? How do we dare do this? And yet, Jesus did not ask Peter, his successor, who is going to take you seriously? What are your metrics? When will you deliver some results? Instead, Jesus asks, do you love me? <clears throat> the source for our guidance and courage, says Nowen, is contemplative prayer. For a fruitful future as a Christian leader, regardless of setting, we must move beyond ego and importance, and from the moral to the mystical, and root ourselves in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus' second temptation was to do something spectacular, something worthy of hits, likes, tweets, and more followers. The devil goads Jesus at the top of the temple. Since you are God's son, jump. The angels will catch you so that you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. With best-selling books like Lean In, the proliferation of TED Talks, and hours of reality TV, personal branding is the new norm. It's hard to feel in if you're not pursuing audience and applause. But, Nowen writes, Jesus didn't come to be a stuntman. And Jesus makes it clear to Peter that his promotion is not for him alone. This is a new kind of leadership modeled on the servant leader Jesus, rather than power games. Peter will be a shepherd who, night and day, nourishes, gathers, rescues, restores, and needs the community as much as it needs him.
Sadly, followers often deny their leaders a safe space for emotion, confession, and forgiveness when they fail. Social media enables and encourages people to judge others with little repercussion. It's like the Lord of the Flies out there. But healthy two-way relationships and safety are what leaders need from their communities, says Nowen, so they can overcome the temptation of individual heroism through the disciplines of confession and forgiveness. Nowen concludes with Jesus' last temptation, the temptation of power. He observes that one of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political, military, economic, or moral, and even spiritual. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. Maybe it's because it seems easier to be God than to love God Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life, observes Nowen. Jesus finally shares a last word on mature leadership with Peter before commanding him to follow me. He tells Peter that he must be willing to be led where he would rather not go. To a place where power is abandoned in favor of love, in a space where a leader can critically discern where God is leading. A seminary professor once commented that now one's teachings wouldn't fly in most settings today, even in churches, because contemplative prayer, confession, and critical discernment take too much time. But then there's Pope Francis, who quite recently told the American Congress let us treat others with the same passion and compassion with which we want to be treated. Let us seek for others the same possibilities which we seek for ourselves. Let us help others to grow as we would like to be helped ourselves. In a word, if we want security, let us give security. If we want life, let us give life. If we want opportunities, let us provide opportunities. The yardstick we use for others will be the yardstick which time will use for us. A guest essay by Beth Kawasaki. For books this week, we've posted a review of a very important book by Francis Jensen. The title is called The Teenage Brain, A Neuroscientist Survival Guide to Raising Adolescents and Young Adults. New York, Harper, 2015. This book is 358 pages long. It's a review by my wife, Patty Clendenin, who read it for one of her book clubs. Any parent of teens will resonate with the challenges and opportunities explored in this carefully researched book on the teenage brain. I read this book for our church book group and found myself alternately relieved 
that there are scientific reasons for the unfathomable things that teenagers can do, and also terrified by all the possible consequences. Francis Jensen, chair of the neurology department at the Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania, explains that although teens are quick learners, the connections in their frontal lobes are not fully developed, leading to a multitude of complications. Chapter by chapter, she draws on her expertise as a specialist in adolescent brain development to paint an alarming picture of the often permanent damage that is triggered by tobacco, sleep deprivation, stress, drugs, alcohol, concussions, all things digital, and eating disorders. In The Teenage Brain, Jensen attempts to write a book that is scientific enough to be credible, but folksy enough to connect with fellow parents. It's a difficult balance to find, but for the most part, she succeeds. She justifies the inclusion of brain studies, charts, and even sad stories of teens whose lives went badly awry as material to open discussions with the young adults in your life. She's relentless with admonitions to talk frankly with your teens. But I do have one minor bone to pick with Jensen. Early in the book, she attempts to reassure parents that most teens survive adolescence and go on to productive lives. And as proof, she tells how her own two sons went on to do advanced degrees in quantum physics and business at prestigious schools like Harvard. Well, that's hardly a representative, a reassuring sample for most of us. Overall, this is a valuable and well-written book. It dispels the myth that teenagers are physically and emotionally resilient, and that their brains can easily bounce back from various forms of abuse. In fact, most unhealthy choices are worse for teens than for adults. The book is an excellent springboard for communication with the teens you love. For an interview with Jensen on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, go to our website in this book review for the URL. Once again, a book review by, of Francis Jensen, The Teenage Brain. <clears throat> For movies this week, we've posted a review of a film called Fed Up 2014. Thirty years ago, type 2 diabetes was almost unheard of, whereas today it's a global epidemic. In America, two out of three people are overweight. And ironically enough, at the same time, health clubs, diet fads, nutrition books, and weight loss reality shows have proliferated. Why is obesity now the greatest form of malnutrition? It's easy to say that diet and exercise are the answers, that we just need more willpower, that people are lazy, or that genetics or family or cultural eating patterns are key. 
This documentary film suggests that these approaches are dead wrong. They lay the blame at the feet of the food industry. Their marketing strategies, their industry-funded pseudo-studies with blatant conflicts of interest, their lobbyists, government subsidies, and so on. All of which is to say that obesity is not just a personal problem, it's a national corporate systematic attack on us. If you find this compelling, you might be interested in a book-length version of a similar argument by Michael Moss. The name of the book is called Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. I've actually reviewed that book on Journey with Jesus. Once again, the title of this documentary movie, Fed Up, from the year 2014. I watched this film on Netflix, Netflix streaming. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem by John F. Dean. The title of the poem is Mercy. Unholy we sang this morning and prayed as if we were not broken. Crooked the Christ figure hung, splayed on bloody beams above us. Devious God, dweller in shadows, mercy on us. Immortal cross-shattered Christ, your gentle grace down upon us. Mercy by John F. Dean Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 18th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.